All right, good morning, Story family. It's good to see all of y'all here in person in the Museum District. I also want to welcome our Timber Grove family over in the Heights of Houston. We love you guys and all of you joining us online, wherever you are in the world. If you're tuning in in this format, you're part of the story today, and we're so glad that you are. What a great time to be alive in the city of Houston. Final Four. How many of you are excited about the Final Four? Don't lie. Don't lie, Houston fans and Longhorn fans. How close you came. How close. It's all right. We're still hosting the Final Four. The Astros are off and running to their 2023 campaign. And most importantly of all, we've got Easter. One week away. It's Holy Week starting today. This is traditionally Palm Sunday. Now, we've already heard the teaching of Palm Sunday a couple of weeks ago um, because of how our series is uh, breaking out. I'll get to that in a minute. But we've got Easter upon us, as you heard in the announcement video. Y'all, uh, Good Friday services at both campuses, 7 p.m., egg hunts at both campuses on Saturday, and then Sunday morning. Just listen, word of the wise, pro tip here. If you call the story home, this is your church, and you know this is where you belong, it's great. I want you to just consider something. Consider here at the Museum District making plans to attend one of the earlier Easter services. And I'm saying that for your good and for our good, all right? So if you come at 7 a.m. sunrise, you know how sweet it will be to not struggle with parking in the least. And you won't have to worry about having to find a seat or whether you'll fit in here or have to go to the overflow room down the hall. At 7 a.m. sunrise service, there's none of that. Same goes for 8.30. Usually we can fit everyone in this, in this room at 8.30 just fine. 9.45 and 11, it's a little tight. So you can make room for our newcomers and guests at 9.45 and 11 where they're more likely to come and have a better Easter celebration for you and or your family. Everybody wins um, if you want to do that. The same goes over at Timber Grove for that 11.15 service, by the way. So um, it's got to be a great celebration one way or another, whatever service you come to, but that's just a little bit inside baseball pro tip there for those of you who want to make your Easter even better. It's going to be a great celebration next Sunday as we rejoice and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We could not be more grateful. Um, this message today is part 19 of 22. We are in the home stretch of this series called A Physician and the Facts. And since early December, we've been putting the research and writings of this first century medical doctor named Luke under the proverbial microscope to figure out what in the world could have possessed a first century Gentile to sign up and become a part of a majority Jewish movement called The Way, which we now call Christianity in the first century. So what was it that motivated him? What did he see? And what can we learn from his experience? And today we're going to be getting into, we're really turning a corner today. We're getting into this chapter that is the, one of the more consequential chapters in the Gospel of Luke, um, because it begins, like all the others do, Jesus hanging with his disciples. But by the end of chapter 22 in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will have been put on trial, arrested, put on trial, convicted of crimes he didn't commit, and, and soon enough, he's going to be put on the cross. So this is a highly consequential part of the story that Luke maps out for us. And I just want to start today's message by actually getting into the passage. Um, we're going to read the first seven or so verses of uh, this passage from Luke 22. So you've got a Bible in the front of you, I think, in the chair back in front of you. You've also um, got your study guides, which have the passages on them. But let's just get into this and see what Luke 
might, be, uh, might have for us today. This is Luke 22, verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 13. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his uh, closest friends and disciples, saying, go, he's saying, go into Jerusalem and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked, because none of them lived in Jerusalem. They didn't have a house there. And Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That would have been odd for a man to carry a jar of water. That was a woman's job in that culture in those days. And so this man would have stood out, and this was their sign that he's the, he's the plant. Somehow he has insider knowledge. I don't know if Jesus, like, like somehow let him know um, telepathically or something. I don't know, but he could if he wanted to, right? But he's in on the plan. It says, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. More about Passover in just a moment. I just kind of wanted to get the table set, so to speak, and we'll talk more in detail in a moment, but I've just been thinking lately about our community, our church, called The Story. And this might seem like navel-gazing or, or self-aggrandizement to some of you that, that aren't a part of the story, but we've had eight incredible years together. The story began in February, late February of 2015. So a little over a month ago, we turned eight. And I was thinking this week and reflecting about all the ways that our community has changed over the years. Now, in lots of ways, the story has remained the same. Our mission to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, pretty much the same. A lot of the content of our messages kind of sounds the same, although I've, I've grown a lot. I, I became a Christian in 2013 and started the story in 2015, so there was a lot of growing to do still. I go back and listen to those first sermons I preached at the story, and I, I think I've told some of you, I would fire him. I would fire that guy. <laughs> we grow, right? We grow over time. And that's been the case with the story in terms of our messaging. Um, the, the name of our church has pretty much stayed the same, but a lot of the other stuff has changed. And one way that we have changed dramatically over the last eight years is how we spend our Sunday mornings. Now, we still gather and all of that like we always have, but what we do in our services is remarkably different now than what we did in the first six to nine months of our existence as a church. What we did in the very beginning was we would come together around some hype. We would come together and have some really like amped up music, an extended musical set, right, that was very dramatic in ups and downs and emotional appeals and stuff like that. And then I would get up and I would preach even longer than I do now. Some of you are nodding your heads. I remember. My Lord, I remember. Like, 
<laughs> it was, it was like the, it was like the test of fire for some of you. Go back and look at the podcast early sermons, and you'll see 45, 50 sometimes minute sermons. And, and I've reined that in a little bit. I've realized we're living in the age of very short attention spans, and my 35 minutes can even be a stretch now, right? So I've, I've reined that in a little. But it used to be the case: lots of music, lots of preaching, a little more music. Let's go home. And every week it was the same. Lots of music, lots of preaching, a little more music, let's go home. Same every week. And let me tell you, the first few months of the story's life, it really worked. And I don't know if it was because we had great musicians and singers and we had all kinds of talent on the stage in terms of the musical groups. And, you know, I was so hyped up to have started the story that I was just, you know, when you're just amped up, like everything's great. And, and I was just so charismatic about like this thing that God's planted in my heart and in our hearts. And, and I think that was a little contagious, you know, and, and man, we were crushing it and growing like crazy. My grandma would say, growing like a weed, right? Well, Jesus would say, be careful when you see things that grow like weeds, right? Some of you know the parable where he talked about seeds that fell in shallow soil and grew like weeds and then easily pulled up, easily withered. And so that's what the story was early on. And what we were thriving on was buzz and hype, and um, word of mouth was spreading because people do get excited about that sort of thing. It's normal. I'm not judging it. A lot of churches do this and, and thrive. But that can only last so long. Depending on how charismatic and charming and, and energetic your leaders are, it can only last so long. And once the novelty began to wear off, attendance began to taper off and struggle and the energy around the movement, this thing called the story, began to wane. Because, you know, if you come together around the performance on the stage, then, then what, you, what you have is a really good service when everything's clicking. But if the music's off and somebody misses a note, it never happens here, but I've heard it happen elsewhere. Like someone misses a note or the tech stuff doesn't work, like we've got a light out, you know, or you've got something that is glitchy in the system, or, or I know this is unthinkable, the sermon's a little off. <laughs> what you have then is a demoralized, sort of a disappointed congregation going home, and no one's more disappointed and demoralized than the people who were on the stage and fumbled the ball. And so that's what began to happen. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I'm, uh, sometimes I'm like Jordan Alvarez up here, and sometimes I'm like Martin Maldonado up here. I, so you Astros fans know what I'm saying. You can't win them all, especially over the long haul. You have ups and downs, good weeks and bad, weeks where you had 25 hours to prepare a message and weeks when you had two and a half hours to prepare a message. It happens. But the question became, what's this community going to thrive on if the performances we've built our communal life around begin to falter? So that was when I was on the edge of burnout and a friend, a mentor really, took me to lunch. We went to Avalon Diner and I had breakfast for lunch because it's never too late for breakfast. And I was there eating my eggs and bacon and this mentor of mine heard me out. He heard the cries of my heart and he said, Eric, it's very simple. The problem that you have is for the last six or seven months, you've built this community around you and your energy on stage 
and the band's energy on stage. And as long as you build this thing around you or the band, you have built something that thrives or falls around a stage performance that's disguised as a worship service. And he said, if you do this, continue to do this, it will crush the story and it will take you down with it. And I, I was like, you know, when you're in the thick of it, you're like six to seven months in, you're like, you think you're locked in. You're like, we're, we're already six months in. What could we possibly change? Like, we're stuck. And he's like, no, 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 it's not that difficult. He said, just serve communion. And at that point in our life, we were serving communion, but only like once a month, maybe, like good Methodist churches did. We were Methodists back in those days, some of you will recall. And most Methodist churches do it like quarterly. We were doing it like monthly, and that felt like a lot. And he said, serve communion. I said, well, clearly, sir, you have not come to the story on the first Sunday of any given month. When we serve, he said, serve communion every week. And I cringed inside, probably outside too. I cringed, and I said, you mean every week like Episcopalians do? <laughs> and he said, yes, serve communion every week. Build your communal life around something other than the stage and the people on it. Because it's only by building your community's life around the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins that this community can stand the test of time. People come and go, singers hit and miss, preachers rise and fall, but the table of Christ stands forever. And ever since, every week, at every service, we have served communion. And for some of you, my sense is that, okay, let me start by, with positive. For some of you, it's very meaningful that we serve communion every week. But if I were to press and maybe, you know, get a glass of wine in you and get you honest, some of you might actually confess that communion at times feels rote, routine and monotonous, like an add-on at the end of a service. We've made it through the music, Eric. We made it through your overly long sermon, Eric. Now you have to sit here through communion too? Come on, let's go home. Like, I know that's how people are bound to feel about something that happens with such regularity because ritual so easily becomes routine and routine so easily becomes monotonous. I know how that goes. And so if you struggle with the meaning of communion, it's either because you've allowed the ritual to become routine and meaningless or it's because you lack biblical knowledge that would inform your understanding of communion and make it more meaningful every time you partake. And that's not on you if you lack that knowledge. That's more on me and other leaders in your life who have yet to teach you why communion matters so much in the scope of the Christian story, okay? And why it matters so much to us and why we continue to build every service around communion. Every service is gonna culminate somewhere. It's either gonna peak with the sermon hitting some emotional high or it's gonna peak at the table of Christ and sermons come and they go, but you can always count on the table. You can always count on the body and blood of Christ broken and poured out for you if you understand what you're really getting yourself into. So um, I think the most uh, key central element biblically to, to really appreciate 
communion is to begin to understand that communion doesn't begin with Jesus in the New Testament. Understanding the depth of communion begins with the knowledge of the Old Testament. And if you have a sort of resistance to the Old Testament, you're not alone. And if you're newish to Christianity and this whole thing just seems weird, like you're not alone. There's, a, there's, there's growth, there's learning, as we just talked about. It's fine, you're on a journey here, but let's talk about the historical and theological root of communion so that we can understand what it is we're actually doing when we walk awkwardly down these aisles and take a piece of bread someone gives us and a little cup. Lest we think we're just drinking the Kool-Aid like our atheist friend said, <laughs> there's actually something profound that we should not take nonchalantly or lightheartedly. So what is that thing? Let's talk about that today. Well, we're, um, what we're talking about biblically is rooted in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12. Now, I'm not going to read this passage like I did in the first service because it's long and it takes a while and I don't want to lose you, all right? So Exodus 12 is a point of reference for all of our groups. And if you go home and study the study guides and, and if you're over at Timber Grove, you're doing the same, like pay attention to Exodus 12 because Exodus 12 sets the table that we come to every Sunday, in Exodus 12, we learn about the historical meaning of and the establishment of the Passover meal. Passover it was and is a Jewish observance that dates back to more than a thousand years before the life of Jesus. So every year for more than 3,000 years, people called Israelites and Hebrews have gathered to remember the same event that is described in Exodus 12. And it has to do with the people of God being enslaved, the Israelites being in chains, being in bondage in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh and forced into all kinds of hard labor, 18 hours plus a day, forced to build things and lift heavy bricks and make bricks without straw. Some of you remember those stories. Not only were they enslaved and forced into hard labor, but God's people were um, victimized by infanticide. The, the Egyptians were threatened by the growth in number of the Israelites, so they began to slaughter the sons of, born to every Israelite woman. If you know this, the origin story of Moses, you know what I'm talking about. That's why they had to put him in the basket and send him down river to save his life. It was absolutely horrific. Well, uh, at one point in the story, God steps in as he is prone to do. He intervened for his people and spoke out against Pharaoh and his harsh treatment of them and said, let my people go. If you're a boomer or older, you'll remember Charlton Heston. Let my people go. It's that whole, that whole drama that played out in a real point in time. When God told Pharaoh in no uncertain terms that these days of enslaving his people were over, and then when Pharaoh refused to listen, God sent one plague after another. Will you listen to the frogs, Pharaoh? No. Will you listen to the hail? No. Will you listen to the boils and afflictions? No. Will you listen to the livestock dying in the fields? No. And eventually, Pharaoh forced God's hand into the 10th plague, which was the most attention-getting and the most brutal of all, the death of every firstborn or the most uh, privileged offspring in every Egyptian household. 
Now, I know how harsh and off-putting that seems, but I encourage you to read Exodus through the lens of the oppressed. Read Exodus not through the lens of the oppressor, as we're prone to do in America. That's how we're kind of taught to read and understand Scripture, especially if you're a secular person. Like, it's the, it's the religion of the oppressed, not the oppressor. In many of our minds, in those days, there was no question. It was the, it was the faith of the enslaved God was interceding for the slaves to set them free. And after giving Pharaoh all these other opportunities, God uh, resorts to this 10th plague. And that's when the Passover instructions were handed down. God said from this year, this day of this year onward, every, every time of year at this two-week period, you'll have a festival that was simultaneously called Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they were both sort of commemorating the same meal. And the Passover meal was the selection, involved the selection of a lamb, the Passover lamb, in which the heads of household were instructed to prepare for the meal the most perfect, spotless, one-year-old lamb to be sacrificed and whose blood would be smeared across the doorpost in Egypt, and then roasted over a fire that meat would be consumed by the community in a hurry. God said, have your shirt tucked in, have your sandals on, have your staff in your hand, and as soon as you finish eating, it's time to go. And for the same reason, it's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, because the bread didn't have time to rise, because when God afflicted Egypt with this 10th plague, Pharaoh said, leave, get out of here. And as soon as he did, it was time to go. There was no time for the bread to rise. And so uh, this meal was meant to be taken in haste with a sense of urgency. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took communion with a sense of urgency? I chuckle as I say it. I can't remember the last time I took communion with a sense of urgency. But that urgency should be at the center of this meal that we commemorate at the end of every uh, service because that's where it began. Now, for me, the cool part is what happened after. God delivered his people from Egypt into the wilderness. So it's not like he delivered them straight into a new home. They wandered as nomads for 40 years. And the following year, after they were delivered, they began to celebrate and commemorate the Passover with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they ate unleavened bread. They ate the Passover meal and remembered and they, they instituted this remember, this observance with the same liturgy that they repeated every year. The head of household, at one point in this meal, would take bread. And according to this tradition, he would take the bread and lift it up and break it. And they would, as a family, everyone who was old enough would repeat this refrain. As he broke the bread, they would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the desert. Every year, for over a thousand years, up to the time of Jesus, this was the same refrain as they broke the bread together. That bread was a remembrance not only of their slavery, which was their affliction, but also of their poverty, which is what's meant by the desert part. They wandered as nomads without homes in the desert. Okay, so this was a bittersweet remembrance. It wasn't just a celebration. It was like, yeah, we've had it hard, man. 
yeah, we've really been in a tough spot at times. And when they were celebrating the Passover in the wilderness, believe me when I tell you it was bittersweet, we have evidence from Scripture that says when they remembered Egypt and their bondage, some of them wanted to go back. When they remembered the blood that they smeared, the blood of the lamb that they smeared over their doorposts, some of them were reminiscing about the time in their life when they actually had doors. Because now we're living in tents. Some of them complained, Moses, why did you take us out of that mess? If you've ever been through a hard time in your life and then you were set free from it, part of you missed the way things used to be. You understand the heart beating in Israel's chest at that point in time. In addition to the bread and the lamb, there were four glasses of wine at the Passover meal, and there still are today. Four glasses of wine, it's not as much fun as it sounds like. It's usually really diluted wine, and uh, it's not quite the party that it seems. But these four glasses of wine symbolized God's rescuing his people from Egypt. The second glass was a symbol of their freedom from slavery. The third glass was uh, God's redemption, by his divine power. And the fourth glass symbolized a renewal. And that's the word I want to put in front of you. The renewal of the people's relationship with God. And you don't always pick up on the last supper Jesus shared with his disciples being a full-fledged Passover meal. But that's exactly what's happening in Luke's gospel, chapter 22. We are picking up the story when the meal has progressed to the third and fourth glasses of wine. Jewish readers would get that automatically, but us Gentiles struggle with that sometimes. So let's pick up in Luke 22 with the third glass of wine, uh, that part of the Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were sharing. 22 verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, this is cup number three, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it just like every head of household had always done for a thousand or more years and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. This is the fourth cup and the final one saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When Jesus took the bread and lifted it and broke it and passed it around and shared it with his disciples, he did not stick to the script that every Hebrew family had stuck to for over a thousand years. He didn't say, this bread is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness, did he? He didn't say, this is a flashback to what we suffered. This is a remembrance of our pain and our past, our affliction. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and remember me. He doesn't say remember your past, remember your failures, remember your chains. He says remember me, remember him. So this is a major departure from the way things were according to Passover tradition. Before Jesus, that bread was the bread of the people's affliction 
to remind us of our past. But in Christ, that same bread has become the bread of our salvation to remind us of our future. And so the pivot point here is that God isn't continuing to put our past in front of us. Remember where you've been. He's like, remember where you're going. And it's this beautiful connection with the Old Testament as well as the New because all along in the Old Testament, God had been promising that a new covenant was coming, that something new was about to to happen through the prophets. He was saying the way things are is not the way they will always be. Remember your future when I tell you something new is about to happen. Something new will save you. And that's why Jesus' words about the blood, his blood in the cup, right, is so important. Because in the past years of Passover commemoration, the Hebrew people would say, this is the blood of the Passover lamb. And it covers us. But the implication is that it covered us for now. It covers us today. But tomorrow, who knows? Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. A new covenant. And the implication is it is not something that comes and goes. It's something that comes and stays. It remains. And this new covenant was foretold beautifully 600 years before Jesus said these words with his disciples. This is in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, written by the prophet Jeremiah centuries before Jesus. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with my people, God would say. With the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband of them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, not just in their books, not just on the scrolls, but in their minds and in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is not a religious connection anymore. If you've ever said the words, I'm spiritual but not religious, you've almost got it exactly right. It's super religious, extra religious, extraordinarily religious, this connection God is proposing to us. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, be religious, come to church, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give their wickedness, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What did Jesus do but fling wide, wide open the doors of heaven, not just for those who behave well enough, religiously speaking, to enter in, but for all who would come and accept his forgiveness, freely afforded to all of us through his blood poured out on the cross. What is happening here? Is this one of those instances where there's a difference between the New Testament God and Old Testament God? And I hear a lot of people struggling with that, especially skeptics. No. A covenant, a godly covenant once made cannot be just canceled out and thrown away. This isn't a different covenant that Jesus proposes here. It is a renewal or a fulfillment of the covenant God proposed in the first place. He is bringing this covenant to its to its fullest end. The best analogy I could think of for this was is a, a marriage in a way. Um, I love weddings. I know not everyone does. I love weddings. I'm paid to go to them usually. So that's one reason. But I also just, <laughs> I would go for free. I just love weddings. I love most weddings. It depends on the mother or the bride. 
typically. But I do love most weddings. And the only thing that's more profound and sweeter than a man and woman coming together and, and making the most insane promises to each other, like, I'm going to give you everything I am, even if you don't give me that in return. I'm going to give it all to you and love you selflessly for the rest of our lives, richer for poorer, sickness and health. I'm there for you. I'm not going anywhere. And the most beautiful thing is when a man and wife come together and say that. But there might be something that rivals it, and that is when that same man and wife, after years in the trenches, after years of lifting each other up and letting each other down, years of keeping promises and breaking some others, after years of trying to tell the truth but sometimes falling short, after years of the struggle that every marriage brings, that same man and woman come back together and say, we want to renew our vows. That, is, that might be even sweeter than the original vows they shared. Because what is a vow renewal ceremony other than two people saying, I'm still here. We're still here. They don't make new promises. They just remember and renew the existing ones. We're still here. The table Jesus set for his disciples is in some spiritual way the same table he sets for us and his people across the world every Sunday, every week. The table that says to us, Jesus is still here. Even though we've been unfaithful, even though we've been unkind, unwilling to cooperate with his purposes, even though we've fallen short, he's still here. And what he proposes to us by his body broken and his blood poured out and the symbols of that body and blood that we share every Sunday is this promise that even as we've wandered, he has remained. And even as we've rejected him, his invitation still stands. I'm still here. I still make you the same promise. And he invites you to come and renew your relationship with him. That is what's happening at the table every Sunday. That, my friends, is why you should never come nonchalantly, without examining yourself, without repenting of your sin. It's, it's, it's not... It's not to beat yourself up. It's not to shame you. The days of sin and shame controlling you are over, remember. We're not talking about your past anymore. We're talking about your future. But you come with an honest heart to say yes to this proposal that the God of all creation is making to you. Will you come and say yes to me again? Or will you come maybe for the first time and say yes to this proposal? This is how Christians have always understood communion. In like the year 50 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Corinth, and he said that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb, the only one without spot or blemish, the perfect one who lived the way we should have and died the way we should have so that we might always live in his love and grace. I pray that you'll receive this invitation of his today.
and know, no matter what you've heard from Christians or preachers or your judgmental mother-in-law, God has forgotten and forgiven your past. Have you? Do you trust him enough to come with your whole heart and renew your relationship with him? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and it is not a once-a-year thing. It is a once and for all. For his blood covers us and protects us from all sin and shame and wrath. And I pray that you will live under that protection and covering today. Let's pray together. God, uh, we give you thanks. There's no words, really, to give you enough thanks for this invitation you've extended to us, even us, even me, Lord. And for all the ways we've fallen short, none of us feels worthy of coming to your table again. And yet you still say, come, will you have me? Come, you are welcome. And so, Lord, we prepare our hearts to come in a moment, Lord, as we receive this invitation and renew our covenant with you. And we thank you for all that you are, Jesus, our Passover lamb. We thank you for laying down your life for us. And we pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.